0: This is CNN. Radio.
1: It sounds to me like you have an appetite for
2: unpredictability. I do. I start my day with a prayer actually make today more unpredictable than yesterday. Because then, you know, there's a sense of mystery, adventure, and creativity.
1: That's Deepak Chopra, and from now on, we're going to start our program, CNN Profiles, with a Chopra-like prayer. Make this show more unpredictable than the last.
0: I was 12 years of age, and Deepak and I were staying with our uncle and aunt in New Delhi. Hey, the, the prayer worked. We have
1: never had two guests for the price of one. Here's Deepak Chopra's
0: brother, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Our parents were more than 300 miles away, and I played a cricket match and around five in the evening, I'm reading Reader's Digest and I fall asleep, take a little nap and I wake up and I can't see. I'm actually blind. So I nudged Deepak, who's sitting next to me reading. and I said, Deepak, I can't see. And that was decades before Deepak even thought to pray for unpredictability. So he started to cry. He said, I have one brother and he's turned blind. This
1: is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Sanjeev and Deepak Chopra are here with me, and I have to tell you, we kept them waiting for a half hour. They were completely calm. I started sweating, but they taught me something about time and how not to sweat already before we even started talking about their
2: book. In the deeper reality, there's no time. In the deeper reality, there is no time. Time is the result of what we call subject-object split. It's uh, the continuity of memory using the ego as an internal reference point. When you go beyond the ego, you break the barrier of time. Well, so I have to say, so I have read, you are here because you two brothers
1: have just written a book called Brotherhood, Dharma, Destiny, and the American Dream. And I have read the first half of that book. Don't tell me the ending. <laughs> but I have read the first half of this book and I have to say, I was not aware of time when I was reading it because the stories were so beautiful. Deepak Chopra, near the beginning of your book, Brotherhood, you describe going back to visit when your father passed away. And there's, there's really an incredible scene in there, and it clearly was a big moment for you at the time. Describe that scene at the pyre and what the priest asked you to do.
2: It's very traditional in Hindu cremations that there's a point during the cremation that you are given a stick and you're asked to bore a hole in the skull of your parent, your father. Symbolically, it represents the soul's flight to freedom. And so, you know, it's a traditional thing. It's done every time there's a cremation. Uh, I was aware of it, but at that moment, you know, your awareness is very heightened. At the same time, you're totally in the present moment. There's no other thought other than your attention and what's being done. So, yeah, it was a pivotal moment because uh, for a second, the thought flashed that one day perhaps my son will have to do this for me. And, you know, this is... um, moment for all of us. It's nothing really unique and yet it's very unique. And the thought of your son having to do it for
1: you i mean, what, what we parents fear the most and we do block it out of our heads is that it would happen the other way as it has happened in Oklahoma with the tornadoes. Mm-hmm. That the parent would have to do it for the child. Mm-hmm. I mean if there's any way that a heart would be broken forever it would be to be a parent in Oklahoma mm-hmm. now. Sure. Sure. And so tell me How does one cope with that?
2: Well, there's a natural history to grief, no matter how tragic the situation is. Uh, There's first intense grief and sorrow, uh, perhaps denial, there's anger, Uh, there's a time when there is surrender, resignation, Uh, there's a letting go, and then the void is always filled with love. That's the natural history. If you suppress your grief, of course, then it leads to pathology. But,
1: but but you're convinced the void is filled
2: at some point. At some point, if you are a healthy person, it is. For some, it is never filled.
1: What, what do you think, Doc, Dr. Ch- Sanjeev Chopra?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if if you read what
0: people like Viktor Frankl, who have survived the Holocaust, have written, see what Elie Wiesel another individual Nobel Peace Prize professor at Boston University have talked about. They went through the most horrific conditions that one can imagine and even in those horrific conditions there were people walking and giving away their last piece of bread to somebody else in the concentration camp. The human spirit is unbelievably tenacious. It will take time for those parents and grandparents to heal and I think it will be the support of the family and the friends and society at large that will help with that healing.
1: You said the word tenacious. I always think of the, the word, it's the same thing, resilient.
0: Absolutely, resilient.
1: On the subject of resilience, I'd like to mine you for your wisdom on this and in the book, Brotherhood, now that you've written your memoirs. And I should tell the audience that you wrote them in alternating chapters, Deepak, you didn't let Sanjeev see your chapters on the same childhood stories, and you didn't let your brother see them. Tell me, each of you, what happened in your upbringing that made you particularly resilient? And do you consider yourselves particularly resilient?
2: I can go back to the time I was six, and my father was uh, invited to England. Our father was invited to England on a scholarship because of his service to Lord Mount Patton before that, you know, it was a difficult choice for him because he had to go by himself and my mother followed and he had to leave us, six and a little under four. And so uh, we had to stay with our grandparents and with our uncles. And so, you know, that was a test of resilience right there. Uh, Subsequently, our father was uh, posted to many stations and for our schooling it was important that we stay in one particular school towards the end of our high school years. So again, we were not living with our parents. But we were so surrounded by love all the time that we never really felt abandoned, never, or insecure except when my grandfather died when I was six and uh, Sanjeev's skin started to peel and uh, nobody could make a diagnosis Till actually it was my father who suggested that he was feeling vulnerable and that he should come back and as soon as he came back his skin was healed. So that's the first example of the mind body connection right there at the age of six years. The mind body connection. The resilience comes through experience, you know, and also the resilience comes if in the midst of all that uncertainty, there is only one certainty and that is love. Otherwise Every uncertainty is manageable.
1: Uh, well, I wanted, you mentioned Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor. You, I interviewed him a few weeks ago, and I asked him how he bounced back because he said to me in Auschwitz and Buchenwald, he survived for his father because he didn't think his father could survive without him. What we don't know, and his father survived through most of that experience two months before the liberation, couldn't make it anymore. And I asked him, because he has a great sense of humor. I said, how does your sense of how did your sense of humor survive what you survived? And he said to me, I don't know how one could survive without it. He said, I would imagine go, without humor you would go into a deep depression that could last your whole life. And there's one more thing. And this challenges what you say about love a little bit. He said, friendship. He said, to me, friendship is a religion perhaps even more important than love from from your experiences growing up and that you've conveyed in brotherhood, is, is he right about friendship?
0: I, I think he's right about both friendship and purpose. You know, the f- French uh, philosopher Montaigne said, the great and glorious masterpiece of man is to live with purpose. For your friends are your chosen family. There's actually some very interesting research on happiness and the happiest people on this planet have lots of good friends. That's the number one attribute. Number two, is the ability to forgive. Earlier, Michael, you were talking about resilience. Think of Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, and when he's released, he's asked a question, do you have a bitterness or resentment against your captors? He said, I have no bitterness. I have no resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. And the third attribute of the happiest people is serving others. So Albert Schweitzer, who was a physician, theologian, musician, Nobel laureate, 1952, he got the Nobel Peace Prize. Very humble man. When he got the Nobel Peace Prize, he said, now I have to go earn it. But he once said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I'm certain of, the ones amongst you who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So I've distilled it into three F's. Friends, forgiveness, and for others. If you do those three things, you'll be happy.
1: For those listening on your on your headphones, this is now Sanjeev Chopra, who is going to tell us about this, this, this very important moment in his life.
0: So I was 12 years of age, and Deepak and I were staying with our uncle and aunt in New Delhi. Our parents were more than 300 miles away. And I played a cricket match, and around five in the evening, I'm reading Reader's Digest, and I fall asleep take a little nap, and I wake up, and I can't see. I'm actually blind. So I nudged Deepak, who's sitting next to me reading, and I said, Deepak, I can't see. So he started to cry. He said, I have one brother, and he's turned blind. Our uncle took me to the military hospital, where the doctors saw me, including an ophthalmologist, and they had no idea what was going on. There was even talk about hysterical blindness, that I was faking it. I was this 12-year-old kid, good student, Pretty good athlete no reason for me to be doing that and finally they tracked our father down 300 miles away in a military jeep on a field trip and he was a brilliant absolutely brilliant physician and he said tell me everything that's happened to sanjeev in the last two months I said he's been fine I Said, no tell me everything any injuries any accidents any new medicines oh yeah yeah last week he had a laceration in his thigh and we had to get him sutures he said, did he get an antibiotic? And they checked the records and said, yes. Then he asked, did he get a tetanus shot? And they looked at the records and they said, yeah, he got a tetanus shot. And he probed further. He said, anti-tetanus serum or anti-tetanus toxoid. This is 1961. And they looked at the records and they said, anti-tetanus serum. And he said, he's having a rare idiosyncratic reaction. Maybe happens one in a million times from the anti-tetanus serum. He has severe bilateral optic neuritis start an intravenous inflammation of the nerves, the the optic nerves, and uh, start him on massive doses of intravenous prednisone, corticosteroids. So that was done. And about five, six hours later, I could see a glimmer of light and then gray. And then I could see the hospital walls. Every hospital wall in the military hospitals was green and my eyesight was restored. Uh, I could have turned permanently blind. I've told this story to professors of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School, and they're absolutely blown away. said, wow, many an ophthalmologist would not have known that. You rem-
1: And do you remember it the way uh, Deepak Chopra, do you remember
0: yeah. that blindness story, the way Sanjeev remembers
2: absolutely, it? Absolutely, exactly the same way.
0: And Michael, that was the moment I decided to become a physician. That I need to be a physician like my father.
1: And a physician, it, 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 he was almost a magician, really, when I, when I read these stories about diagnoses. Yes. As a diagnostician, I, Deepak Chopra, are you a diagnostician for the soul?
2: <laughs> I think everybody is if they take time to be quiet and uh, they ask themselves questions. Um, if they ask questions in silence, they have what spiritual traditions call revelation so every scripture is referred to as revelation which means the revealing of truth that already exists and you know i recently wrote a book called God a story of revelation where I track the history of Revelation from Job in the Old Testament, who was the first person to ask, actually, why do good people suffer? Because he's such a good person and he does suffer. And then I track it through St. Paul and on to Rumi and Shankara and some of the Christian saints, and finally to Einstein and Tagore. And the common theme there is, yes, if you go deep, within your own self the ground of your being you get in touch with the ground of all being there's a phrase in Vedanta the self of the individual is the self of the universe so uh, the innermost core of every being is a field of possibilities of truth Um, in Sanskrit we say sat-chit-ananda sat means truth chit means consciousness knowingness and ananda, ananda means bliss So am I a diagnostician of the soul? I've paid more attention perhaps to it than others, but so is everyone
1: else. Now I want to shift over to Deepak Chopra because there was a pivotal moment in your life when you decided the traditional path in medicine, certainly in the laboratory, was not going to be for you. Can you share that story with us?
2: Yeah, I was training uh, as an endocrine fellow with a very famous endocrinologist, And there were certain things that I was becoming aware of in my setting in academia. And that was, it was very competitive. There was a lot of one-upmanship. There was a hurry to publish. And uh, although there was a great desire to know the truth, um, at least in the environment that I was in, it was more important to publish. We have a phrase in academia, publish or perish. So I was already becoming a little disenchanted with the environment I was in. One particular day my supervisor, my attending, my professor asked me a question, how many milligrams of iodine did Milne and Greer's rats get in the 59 paper? And actually I had that information with me in my head but I wanted to be sure, I said it was I think 2.1 or 2.2, let me check it. And he looked at me in a very scornful way and he said uh, You should have that information in your head by now. So I took my briefcase, which had all these reference papers, and dumped it on his head. And I said, you have it in your head now. And I walked out, actually. And he said he was shocked, as were the other fellows. And uh, he said, you know, you've just finished a career. You're done. You'll never have a career in endocrinology anymore. And I said, that's fine. And, you know, actually I started to drive my little Volkswagen Beetle and he held on to it. Um, and, and he was so mad, he called my wife and she was pregnant with our son, Gotham, And he said, your um, husband's career is gone. He's finished. And I actually didn't go home. I went to a bar and I got drunk and drove drunk home. Uh, this is 1972. Four, 73, I think, and uh, I didn't have a job, and I knew I could not get a job, you know, I had actually insulted an important person, and um, I'd done it impulsively, but obviously something was brewing. I found an advertisement in the Boston Globe for an emergency room position in, the, in Everett, Massachusetts. I went there, met a Hispanic doctor who became a good friend of mine later. Gonzalez, Dr. Gonzalez, I don't know anything about emergency medicine. He said, I need someone, I'll train you. So that was a year of academia. Then I applied for chief residency. And finally, I did finish my endocrine training. Uh, the same year, Sanjeev uh, finished his gastroenterology training. So even though I was two years ahead, now we finished our boards together, endocrine and uh, gastroenterology. gastroenterology boards. And then I practiced endocrinology for a while. I made rounds at uh, the various uh, institutions in Boston associated with academia, taught medical students, but uh, finally, uh, thanks to a series of other circumstances and partly my own training in neuroendocrinology, where we're seeing the connection between consciousness and biology, mind and brain, brain and body, brain, mind, and immune system, the field of neuro endocrinology but also neuro immuno endocrinology and my own experiences in meditation things started to connect in my own consciousness so I, I took the plunge, I left.
1: Well, this is one of the lessons of life
2: I, I keep on
1: experiencing myself and from wise people of experience there, there is so much serendipity mm-hmm. involved in our journeys and what I want to figure out for myself I think I'm on the road is how do you maximize serendipity?
2: I wrote a book about it.
1: So here you were, you were, you were in medicine, too much emphasis on publishing. Deepak Chopra, you've written 70 books. I have to tell you, there was one time I went in, it was for grief counseling, after my parents died. I went to a psychologist, and I was bothered about more than just my parents. It was all the life issues came up, and he started listening to how much I cared about ideas and expressing them, and he gave me some advice. And I think he must have spoken to you many years ago because he said to me, never keep any ideas trapped in your brain.
2: They multiply when you spread them. There's like ideas that, you know, like memes, uh, the equivalent of genes, they replicate. And the more you share them, the more replicable they become if they were worthy ideas. So, you know, in the Rig Veda, there's a saying. In the what? It's an ancient Indian text. Let noble thoughts come to me from every side, because your thoughts don't belong to you. Just like your body doesn't belong so to so you. So to both of you, because
1: as as a traditional MD, there is so much information to get a handle on, and yet there's only room for so much, and you want to keep an open mind. So in this particularly noisy age, and maybe you two are not experiencing it as a noisy age because... As we began discussing before we even came into the studio, I was listening to the tick-tock, tick-tock of this uh, on-air sign outside of our studio. You weren't even hearing it. Do you just have, do both of you have an enormous capacity to just focus, as you say, on the person in front of you? Are there no distractions in your lives?
0: There clearly are distractions, but I think what happens is that when you practice meditation, you experience this amazing silence during the meditation, and then that silence begins to permeate into activity. And no matter how chaotic things are around you, you're grounded in that silence. I give talks uh, maybe 50, 60 times a year to in aggregate 50, 60,000 physicians uh, throughout the United States. Uh, And I attribute the fact that I won a lot of teaching awards and so on and I can speak without a note And I can be looking at somebody on on the right and seeing that during a certain sentence They have a quizzical look and I say let me restate that and I attribute all of that to not Inherent talent or anything of that sort, but the daily practice of meditation
1: I attribute it to even something else that
0: both of you experienced it. I am so strong
1: I have to come back to your father the listening. When you when you both describe the experiences of your father as a diagnostician, it was so much about not rushing to judgment, about listening. Tell tell me how much I mean I don't know if there's no way to quantify it, tell me about the listening that you do.
2: Well there's listening with the instrument of the flesh, there's listening with the mind, there's listening with the heart, and there's listening with the soul. Uh, My father, our father, was actually an amazing listener, even with the flesh, which means with the instruments of perception. One of the things he was known for, by the way, was he could tell, and this is a very technical thing, the PR interval, which is in microseconds, milliseconds. It's the interval between the beating of the auricle and the ventricle of the heart. And he could time that to the precise moment in milliseconds by listening to the difference between the fourth heart sound and the first heart sound. Most people can't even hear the fourth heart sound. Not only could he hear the fourth heart sound, he could time the difference and predict what it would show in the EKG. Now that skill is gone forever. You know, when my father trained... EKG had just come in fact he trained with a man called Dr. Lewis uh, we know him for what we call the Lewis leads the chest leads on the EKG so he was one of the first people the chest
1: leads that what they attach to your body body yeah um, to pick up the electric yeah. signals. so he
2: could correlate his listening skills with the electro electrical information that came from the heart through these Lewis or chest leads uh, but he was also a good listener to his patients' stories. He heard them out. You know, right now, uh, every patient comes to a doctor with a story, but the doctor is no more interested in making a diagnosis and giving a prescription or offering a treatment or ordering a diagnostic test than to listening to the story. That's changing a little bit. Right here, Columbia Medical School in New York, they actually have a rotation in what they call narrative medicine, where they teach medical students to listen to the whole story. Because unless you know the story, you don't know the context in which the illness is occurring. It sounds so basic, just narrative.
1: We we are all living our narrative.
0: But it's not only happening at Columbia, it's uh, happening at Harvard Medical School, it's happening at Stanford. Um, the, The art of listening has been lost and we have to retrain the medical students and the young doctors. Many an attending will go to see their patient on the wards and they'll be standing at the foot end of the bed and towering as the patient is lying on the bed and ask a few questions. They could spend 20 minutes And then you talk to the patient and say, how long did Dr. Smith spend this morning at rounds? And the answer is gonna be two or three minutes because they had the feeling that he or she was gonna click and turn on their heels and walk out. So what I've taught and what I've done over the years for more than three decades is I pull up a chair and I sit down and I listen to them. And then I examine them and then I sit down again. And I take a piece of paper and I put down my cell phone number and say, do you have any questions? No, I don't, Dr. Chopra, thank you so much. I said, you know, there's a good chance as I leave the room, you'll think of a question. Or your family would come in and they'll say, did you ask Dr. Chopra about, you know, whether you need hepatitis A vaccine? And so please write it down and I'll be back. I now want to do a study where I would like to randomize half the primary care physicians at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center where I have my clinical appointment in liver disease, At the end of the interview, half of them would ask this question of the patient. I'm privileged to be your doctor. Please tell me, what can I do better to be an advocate for your health and well-being? And the other half don't ask that question. Now, I've had this discussion with my colleagues, and they say, oh, wait a minute, we've got 15, 20 minutes to see the patient. And this could open up all kinds of stuff. What if the person says, you know, I'm, I'm suffering from... Parental trauma or, you know, my wife beats me up or my husband, domestic violence. I said, it's very simple. You say, it is so important. We need to discuss it. I'm sorry I can't discuss it. I'm going to make a notation in the record. And please come back and see me in two weeks. And that's where we'll start. I'm going to translate what you just said to me
1: for parents, for parenting. Absolutely. I'm still learning. And so as the parent, you really need need to, to, to this idea of worry, from both your more traditional medical perspective and and Deepak yours, how destructive is it and how productive is it, how how beneficial is it to your health to figure out a way to not worry and how do you even do
0: that? So I have, um, you know, my specialty is liver disease and more than one billion people in the world have chronic liver disease between hepatitis B, hepatitis C, the most common genetic disorder known to man is not cystic fibrosis. It's a condition called hemochromatosis where there's extra iron being absorbed from the gut, gets deposited in the liver, the pancreas, the heart, and can lead to major problems. And many a patient with hepatitis C, the baby boomers in particular, had experimented with intravenous drugs two or three times, two or three times, and if they share needles 50% of them get saddled with chronic hepatitis C infection in the first six months and 75% by the end of a year. So now they're productive citizens and they're working, they have families and now they're being diagnosed with hepatitis C. And I see them and they say, oh my God, Dr. Chopra, I just did it two or three times. I was young. Uh, A friend asked me to try it. What's going to happen to me? Will I get cirrhosis? Will I get liver cancer? Can I transmit this to my children? Can I transmit it to my wife? And I often say to them, said, you know, there's a wonderful saying, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. So stay in the present with me. I will be there for you. I will do the best I can to cure you. And incidentally, it's the, uh, interestingly enough, it's the only chronic viral infection in human beings that we can cure. And 15 years ago, we had a success rate of 6%. And now we're at the stage where close to 80 to 90% cure rate. The virus is eradicated.
1: Now, now, Deepak Chopra, listening to that story, I bet I know one question you would ask your brother. We'll see if I can channel you at all. But it would be, why is it that some people who experimented with that intravenous drug use get the disease and are affected by it and others are not?
2: Maybe he has an answer, but the real answer, I think, is we don't know. <laughs> you know, the biological responses are unpredictable, as are fundamental uh, uh, things in nature that's what uh, led me to the whole idea of creativity in the absence of unpredictability there would be no creativity so you know you can never you can make a diagnosis but it's difficult to pinpoint a precise prognosis in an individual patient it sounds to me like you have an appetite for unpredictability i do i start my day with a prayer actually make today more unpredictable than yesterday because then you know there's a sense of mystery adventure and creativity now you know this whole business of worry and stress and here's the way to look at stress everybody blames you you did earlier you said you know there's so much stress around us and so much happening around us it's difficult to remain centered so there are many descriptions of stress in the Western literature. So in, in in the literature, medical literature, stress today is defined as the perception of physical or psychological threat. Um, in um, in uh, my world, uh, that's a wrong definition. Stress is not in the environment. Stress is not in you. Stress is in how you interact and interpret of what's happening to you. So if you've already surrendered to uncertainty, there's nothing to worry about. Because everything that you worry about is how the universe should conform to you. The whole universe should be obeying your commands. Otherwise, you know, if, if something goes wrong, you you get stressed.
1: I want to ask you the final question, and I promise you this is the final question. I love the technique you used in this book, Brotherhood. You each wrote your chapters on given periods in your life, independently, without sharing them with each other. Tell me, each of you, what did you learn from the other, about the other, from this book that you didn't know?
0: Actually, I know my brother very well. So um, it was predictable the way he would write. And, And we are two very different voices. He's got the uncanny ability and the gift to be telling a story and then sort of digress and bring in Rumi or Tagore or Jesus Christ or the Buddha and then come back to that story and it just seems to flow. My style is very different, it's much more simple and narrative, but uh, the stories gelled. The titles of each of the chapters, uh, I wrote 12, he wrote 12, it took me literally less than 12 minutes to think of the titles and it just worked, it it was amazing. We've never collaborated uh, in this fashion.
1: Let let me ask you too, because really what I'd like to say now, because I have learned from you, is to say it it has been a privilege being your interviewer, and so I would like to ask you, is there anything I can do to be a better interviewer?
0: You are a very Very good interviewer. Absolutely terrific, Uh, honored to be here. You asked very interesting probing questions, and you were a very good listener, you didn't interrupt. You smiled. You made us feel very comfortable. Made I'll tell you what we can do.
2: Please. Do it again with us. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah.
0: You just made
1: my day. No, seriously. You day. <laughs> seriously. Seriously. Um, We'd love to. Thank you so much, Deepak and Sanjeev Chopra, for sharing uh, the book Brotherhood with us and for joining us on CNN Profiles.
0: Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Terrific.
1: By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy, share.